This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to the Triple Vision podcast, your window into the past, present, and future of blindness in Canada. This podcast has been made possible by a generous contribution from T-Base Communications and the support of the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. The mission of Triple Vision is to gather and document previously untold Canadian blindness narratives, one lived experience at a time, and to make our history accessible and universally known. Welcome to Triple Vision. My name is Peter Field, and I'm your guest host for today. I want to start today's episode by acknowledging that I'm speaking to you today from the unceded traditional territory of the Chilkwayak, Pilot, and Semeth peoples. In saying this, I recognize that I'm a guest on this land, and I acknowledge the need to actively work to rectify the tragedies of colonialism which occurred on this territory, as well as many other territories of the land which was renamed Canada. I hope this podcast will go a little way to deepening our understanding of colonialism and what we can do to reconciling this history for the better. I'm Hannah Levitt, and I'm going to be Peter's co-host today. And I'm speaking to you from Saanich, British Columbia, which is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. Today, I want to introduce our topic, which is colonialism. While we could give you a dictionary definition of colonialism, we thought it would be better to let someone talk to you about what it actually feels like to have lived under colonialism in two different ways. So I'd like to welcome Doreen Demas to today's podcast. First of all, Doreen, welcome to the Triple Vision podcast. Thank you, uh, Peter and uh, Hannah. As was introduced, I'm uh, Doreen Demas, and I'm participating on this call today from Winnipeg, which is on Treaty 1 territory and homeland of the Métis and the unceded territory of the Dakota people, of which I'm a member of. And we'd like to, first of all, ask you if if you can tell our listeners a little bit about your early experiences with colonialism and how it shaped your identity. So I guess many people know that, um, or I shouldn't assume, I guess, but Indigenous people in this country, certainly First Nations peoples, have lived under probably one of the most racist and discriminatory pieces of legislation called the Indian Act. And essentially what that piece of act did was dictate how our people lived, what they could do, where they could go, and what they couldn't do. And of course, that included people, persons with disabilities, people like myself. And in those days, as we've heard a lot about now, is the whole experience of residential schools. So if you were an Indigenous person living on a reserve, chances were that you would be sent to a residential school. So in talking to people with disabilities or Indigenous persons with disabilities, I know that many have talked about their experience going to a residential school as a person with a disability. In my case, I went to a, I also went to a residential school, but slightly different. The one I went to was a School for the Blind in Brantford, Ontario, because essentially my parents were told that quote-unquote, if they cared about me and wanted the best for me, that I couldn't function in the regular school system, that I had to go to Ontario. And I would get an education, and I would, I guess, be but a person. So that's what I did. 
And in those days, which was in the 60s, uh, I think many of the ways that people were treated in residential schools was uh, somewhat similar, maybe not as severe or harsh, but we had strict rules of what we could do and what we couldn't do. We were not allowed to leave the grounds unless we were unless we were told we could or we could go with other people. So essentially we were stuck inside uh, the grounds of the school and uh, we had to follow the rules. And if you didn't, then of course you were punished. What's interesting to me is that I was raised in my community in Manitoba and my family always allowed myself and my siblings free reign to go about our community. I mean, I'm not suggesting we ran loose, but we were able to go and visit friends. We were able to play in the back of our house. We had trees and we could climb them. We could kind of pick berries. We could do whatever made us happy. And that's what we did. But when I got to Branford, I found out that uh, I could no longer do those things. I Everything I did was pretty much dictated by either the house parents or the teachers and instructors that we had. So if you wanted to get along in Branford, you know, you had to comply. And essentially, I at first did, because when I first went to the school, I didn't really speak very much English. And so I did a lot of observing. I watched a lot because I still had some vision back then. And I decided within myself, I think that if I had to be sent away that far away from school or from my own community, that um, I needed to comply with what was happening if I wanted to get along. And if I didn't want to be punished, then I had to follow the rules. And at first I did. But as I got older and as I got more comfortable with myself and became more assertive, those things started to change. And I started to stand up for myself and I wouldn't always do what I was told. So I can recall my parents once getting a report card. We actually not only got academic report cards, but we also got, quote unquote, a report card of how we behaved ourselves in residence. And of course, mine was always, you know, like F's because I apparently never listened to what I was told to do. And I would, you know, I would I carry on with uh, doing things that were against the rules and so on. So, yeah, so my residence report cards were never that great. So I went there till I was in grade seven. And a friend of mine from Manitoba as well, the two of us were sent home in December because the superintendent told us that, um, well, we had asked to go home, and I think he said something like, well, you said you wanted to go home, fine, I'll send you home. And for whatever reason, he told my friend, you, you can't come back. And he told me I could come back if I wanted to, which, of course, I never did. And so that was my experience at uh, School for the Blind in Bradford. Well, thank you, Doreen. I mean, that's great that you were able to, you know, over time kind of stand up for yourself and realize, well, I don't really have to do um, everything that I'm being told. Can you tell me, um, did you have to then go through sort of a period once you left uh, the interior, the Brantford School for the Blind in terms of reclaiming culture or even language? What did, what did you experience in terms of Brantford that you think that, that you may have lost, and did you have to kind of reclaim that later on? Definitely, I lost probably uh, a good percentage of my language 
And um, even though, I mean, even to this day, I understand a lot of Dakota, but I don't, it's difficult for me to speak it, I guess, part in part because I feel like I might not pronounce the words correctly, but uh, put it this way, as I told my cousin one time, but she can't talk about me. I, I understand enough to know, you know, to be able to at least know what people are saying. But, oh, definitely, when I came home on my first with my family, I um, it was an adjustment because I was used to things being done a certain way. And um, as I said, uh, you know, some of our cultural practices were lost to me. And um, I... Yeah, I had to relearn some of those things. Some of them I never read, never relearned. They were just gone. But um, when I, when my parents, um, I guess when when I came home from school, they, um, you know, it was kind of like, what what do I do with her now? Because I was, I was only twelve, going on thirteen. So um, I still had to go to school. And in those days, I think they were just starting to educate children with disabilities, including those that were visually impaired or blind. So it was kind of challenging, but the Department of Education, I think, um, you know, placed me in a school. And I don't know why they felt I had to go to Brandon, which is, which would have been a good 70 miles from home. So I still had to be away from my family. Um, I mean, I, I don't know why I couldn't have gone to school where the other kids in my reserve went. Which which was a good thirteen fourteen miles away on the bus, but instead I had to go to school in Branford, and I went there for one year. I lived with a family um, who I would say in some ways were very were okay. They they treated me fine, but I also know that they had stereotypes of Indigenous peoples. So, you know, the old stereotype of, oh, you know, Indians aren't very clean. So the first thing that they had to do with me when I got, when I when I was brought to their home was the first thing they ordered me to do was to go and have a bath in case I wasn't clean. So, um, and the woman would make comments about, for example, her neighbor, um, called me over and told me that she had made bannock one time and she thought I would like it since she knew I ate it at home, which was true, but I had a piece of it. And when I got back, my uh, sort of foster mother at that time asked me, well, what did you think? Was it good? And uh, I said, it was okay. And she goes, what, you didn't like it? And I said, well, it was all right, but it, it wasn't quite like how my mother makes it. So she didn't say anything, but later on, I heard her talking on the phone to her neighbor, and uh, I actually heard her say something like, well, probably the only difference was that, you know, um, she used a clean, a clean bowl to make the bannock in. So, you know, those kind of, you know, racist things were said. And, um, yeah, it's just the kind of things that... Uh, I think a lot of times when kids are in foster care, Indigenous kids are in foster care, that's the kind of thing they have to endure. So the following year, I actually attended the residential school because in those days, residential schools were still operating. So I went to the, the residential school in Brandon. I only went for a few months. 
I really, I, I think that the woman from Indian Affairs felt that, well, since I had attended a residential school in Ontario, I would fit right in since, the, you know, the residential school in Brandon, it was pretty much or somewhat similar to what I went in Ontario, which wasn't at all. It was totally different. And I didn't fit in because I had, I was, it's hard to explain, but I, I just didn't quite fit into um, the residential school in Brandon, and I was very unhappy there. And uh, I remember, uh, I think around Christmas time, I went home and I told my father I disliked it there. And so he said I didn't have to go back. So I didn't. Could you tell us a little bit about your your journey into the world of advocacy? When I was older, I actually, you know, I had by that time I had moved to Winnipeg. I was living on my own. I was an adult, and I was learning how to. I think it was I had a uh, a summer job, and um, it meant looking at um, printed materials. And so during the school year, I think I was in university at that time too. I had uh, borrowed a piece of equipment from the CNIB that they said I could use. And so I asked them if I could keep it for the summertime for my summer job. And they told me I couldn't. And uh, I asked them why. And they said, well, you know, I was a, a quote unquote status Indian. Therefore, they were supposed to provide me with things like equipment that this this piece of equipment was for uh you know those other blind or visually impaired children so they told me I couldn't keep the piece of uh, this uh, I think it was a visual tech or something so something in me just told me that I I didn't agree with that and I thought well that's kind of discriminatory so I called them back and I asked them and I said well Okay, if you if you're not going to let me have this piece of equipment, then I'd like you to put it in writing because I'm going to fight it. All of a sudden, they were reluctant to do that. So I think that's the first time that I actually stood up for myself and thought, wait a minute, you know, I have rights and you can't discriminate against me just because I happen to be an Indigenous person. So they they actually made a distinction between you as a client of CNIB as an Indigenous person and other clients of CNIB? Right, and they do that. I would suggest that they still do that today if they can get away with it. Because the whole idea is that First Nations people that are under the Indian Act that have treaty status are supposed to be, quote-unquote, the responsibility of the federal government. And since a lot of these programs are provincially funded, what they say, so it becomes like a jurisdictional issue because what they say is that, well, you know, you're you're covered under the federal government. They should be providing you with whatever it is, the wheelchair or the, in my case, the visual tech and so on. So when you um, explored, you know, had for your first successes with being able to speak for yourself, did you get involved with the Indigenous community in that way? And did you experience accommodation challenges within that community? Well, actually, my advocacy with the Indigenous community didn't happen right away. I like to think that I learned my advocacy skills and knowledge by joining some advocacy groups for persons with disabilities here in Winnipeg and Manitoba and eventually Canada. And uh, it was later on that um, I was part of a few different Indigenous uh, organizations for persons with disabilities. And eventually, uh, I even was able to 
be involved in international indigenous issues as well. But my, I guess, beginnings started with um, the Manitoba League for Persons with Disabilities in Manitoba. Can, Doreen, can you tell us more about your international work? I understand that you were involved with, uh, I believe it was the UN Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities. Can you tell us more about that? Well, my my involvement with with uh, the it, not so much the UN Convention because by the time I got to the UN, uh, the convention had already been um, you know developed and adhered to. So what I where I started was going to the uh, the United Nations Permanent Forum for Indigenous Peoples, and we started an international um, organization or alliance for. Uh, indigenous persons with disabilities. So we had persons like myself from Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, and um, some African countries, and some countries in Central and South America. And yeah, and uh, we started the group um, to try to intervene at the UN level because although the permanent form you know, although they worked on, indig- on indigenous issues, we didn't see much happening for indigenous persons with disabilities. So we became the voice for indigenous peoples at the international level. Yeah, and I understand, Doreen, that you think that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission has left out people with disabilities. That that's something that they didn't address in their ninety-two recommendations. Well, I feel that uh, there was mention about Jordan's principle, which is important, and I certainly respect Can Can you tell us what that is, Doreen, Jordan's principle? Sure. The very quickly, Jordan's principle came about as a result of a little guy by the name of Jordan River Anderson. He was from Norway House, Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba, and he was born with various disabilities, and it ended up where he couldn't leave the hospital because the services that he required in order to go home to his own community weren't available there. And also, there it became a jurisdictional issue because it was about the province and the federal government fought over who was going to pay for his services. So it went back and forth and back and forth. And meanwhile, this little guy continued living in the Children's Hospital in Winnipeg. And he lived there until he died. And um, it wasn't until after his death that Jordan's principle came about because of some advocacy from his family and other peoples. And so Jordan's principle basically says that a child needing services, the services will be provided first and who's going to cover it will come later. So that's really the gist of it. Uh, is kind of taken on its own uh, or environment, I guess you could say, because there's been funding that's been dolled out to communities and other organizations uh, around Jordan's principle. But what I really feel where the truth and reconciliation uh, may be, and I know the uh, the commissioners, so I rever- I say this very respectfully because I think that part of what happened was that people came before the commission to talk about their issues and their experiences when they attended residential schools. 
But I think that besides Jordan's principle, I don't think that there was enough said or enough written into the the calls to action that specifically addressed Indigenous persons with disabilities. And that's where I think the shortfall was. Doreen, before you go, um, because the Triple Vision uh, podcast is about the past, present and future, can you tell me what you think the future of blindness in Canada is, and, and particularly around this issue, around how the the country is trying to reconcile with its First Nations, Indigenous people, and and that intersection with people with disabilities? What what do you think the future holds at this point? Well, I'm, I think I'm fairly optimistic because I'm seeing a few more Indigenous peoples with disabilities, in particular blind people, uh, without naming them. I'm seeing them starting to uh, be present, I guess, at the national level and so on. And so that that's a good thing because we need more people to stand up and speak out about their issues. It's not that there never was enough blind or visually impaired Indigenous peoples in this country. It's just that the opportunity has never really been there. And some people... Um, you know, feel comfortable doing it through an Indigenous organization or uh, there are there are very few organizations for Indigenous persons with disabilities. So, and, you know, with the many years of experience that I've had talking about these, these issues, uh, let's just say that, uh, you know, the, the, um, the wheel of... Uh, of opportunity has moved very, very slowly. But, you know, some of us are getting a little long on a tooth, but every time I see a young person who's standing up and speaking out on these issues, yeah, I feel uh, I'm always happy to see that because I know that they they won't let these issues die. They will continue to move those issues forward. And yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic in that way for the future. That's great to hear. Well, Doreen, I want to thank you very, very much for participating in this interview and sharing the complications of having kind of a dual identity of being both blind and an Indigenous woman in our country today. And thank you for your involvement in the disability world as well and advocating. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this podcast. Join us next time when we'll be discussing the history and trends in the white cane. And you can look forward to the Triple Vision team hosting a Twitter space where following the podcast, we'll be opening it up for the community, the broader community, to talk about the issues, the kind of issues that Doreen has raised today. So that will be happening soon. We'll make sure you know about that on uh, upcoming Triple Vision podcasts, and we'll be tweeting that out as well on our at TripleVision21 Twitter handle. So please look forward to that and join us there. Triple Vision is made possible by the generous support of T-Base Communications and the Alliance for Equality of Blind Canadians. Triple Vision is produced in collaboration with Accessible Media Inc. AMI-audio. Sam Robinson is the technical producer and Andy Frank is the manager of AMI-audio. If you would like to reach out to the Triple Vision team with questions or comments, 
You can reach us by email at triplevision21 at gmail.com or reach us on Twitter at triplevision21. Triplevision21.